The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. You can find the book of Exodus chapter 1. The book of Exodus chapter 1, second book of the Bible. Your Bible, your Bible app. There are some Bibles in the back as well if you need one. And you want to keep your Bible handy today or your Bible app open. We're going to be moving through this book. I'd encourage you to follow along. The book of Exodus. We will begin in chapter 1. A couple of things before we begin. First of all, there is a course called Perspectives that is a wonderful introduction to God's heart for the nations and his call to make disciples among all nations. Our friends Dave and Mindy Fenska are helping to coordinate the current Perspectives class. And this Tuesday night, there is a free first session. You don't have to sign up. You just show up Tuesday night, Skyline Church, to get introduced to this course. You're going to hear a, a very helpful speaker. See Dave and Mindy right here in the front for more information. I have taken that course with my dear wife. We both benefited a great deal. I'd encourage you to check out Perspectives Tuesday night. A couple words on resources for the book of Exodus. One book that I recommend, uh, recommend that I read in preparation for this series is by Carmen Imes, Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. Bearing God's Name, Why Sinai Still Matters. A nice introduction to Exodus, and then she draws out a particular theme into the other books of Moses, through the Old Testament, into the New Testament, and our own lives. So I would encourage you to consider a copy of, picking up a copy of Bearing God's Name. She's also involved with the Bible Project, and the Bible Project has some wonderful introductory videos on the book of Exodus. You can go to bibleproject.com, bibleproject.com. And here's a little forecast of what we're going to do. We're going to pair Exodus with the book of Revelation. We're going to do sections in Exodus, and then sections in Revelation, and then sections in Exodus, and sections in Revelation. I think that's going to take us a couple of years. But that way, we're going to get Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, and different genre, different types of literature in the Bible with one big overarching theme of a grand, glorious vision of our God. That's what we want to gain, a sort of cumulative effect a high view of God and His saving work. So today is going to be an overview of Exodus and then why this book can be so helpful for us. So think overview and why. Let's pray for the Holy Spirit's help. Spirit of God, we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts as has already been prayed. Do that for us. Don't, don't leave us simply to our own understanding. Open the eyes of our hearts. Grant us the gift of illumination to behold more of you in and through your word. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 1, 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. 
All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lindsay. Henry Ford once experienced a breakdown on the Ford assembly line that no one could seem to fix. And so he called in Charlie Steinmetz, the mechanical genius who had designed and built the Ford plant. Steinmetz showed up, tinkered for a few minutes, threw the switch, and everything began running again just fine on the assembly line. Well, days later, Ford received a bill from Steinmetz for $10,000, a huge sum of money in those days. So Ford wrote to Steinmetz, hey, Charlie, don't you think this bill's a little high for a little bit of tinkering? And Steinmetz sent back an itemized bill to Ford, quote, tinkering, $10. Knowing where to tinker, $9,990. Well, like the Ford assembly line, we often need some tinkering. And just as critically, we need to know where. Where? Why do I say that? Well, it's been a challenging few years for just about every single church that I'm aware of, including our own pandemic-related things, and you fill in the blank, every other challenge. And in five weeks, we will send the Morgan family to new gospel ministry in Texas. The understandable temptation can be for us to be discouraged, feel deflated, maybe downcast. I feel that sometimes too. We're going to need some tinkering in our souls as a church. But we always, we always need tinkering in our souls, don't we? Our hearts are constantly turning in on ourselves. Mine does, and I trust yours does too. Our hearts constantly want to prioritize me, myself, and I. And so our hearts need a constant reorientation, a constant bit of tinkering. And just like Charlie Steinmetz, God knows exactly where to tinker. Your heavenly Father knows exactly the right spot in which to tinker. And through Exodus, he hits a vital spot in which he'd like to tinker. Here, through this book, we behold him most of all. Here we behold God and his saving acts and his motivation for those saving acts, his glory, his great glory. That's the, the overarching theme for Exodus I want to submit to you, to behold the glory of the God who saves. That's what we want to have happen through this series, to behold the glory of the God who saves his people. Now, this book is often divided into two parts or three parts. For our purposes today, I'm going to go with a three-part division. 
and survey each part and see a bit of that theme with you. To survey the book in three parts and see that theme of the glory of the God who saves his people. So, section one. Section one, God's glory in the deliverance of his people. God's glory in the deliverance of his people. Chapters 1 through 18. As Lindsay read for us, beginning in verse 1, chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So, right away we are reminded of that dysfunctional family we saw in the book of Genesis. The sons of Jacob, a dysfunctional family, to say the least, through whom God promised to bless all families of the earth. And so God made a covenant with Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, a solemn bond in which God promised to give Abraham's descendants a great nation, make them into a great nation, give them a land, the promised land of Canaan, and through them bring blessing to all nations of the earth. That was God's covenant back in Genesis with and through Abraham. And yet, as we saw, Jacob's sons sold their, their brother Joseph into slavery. As verse 5 says, Joseph was already in Egypt. That ain't just a loaded phrase. <laughs> they had sold him into slavery. So yes, he was first there as a slave. But you might recall, God raised Joseph up to be Pharaoh's right-hand man and brought the whole entire extended family down into Egypt, rescuing them from famine. Now in Egypt, we pick up the story. That family has grown into a great nation as God promised. Verse 7. Look at verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. There is this piling up of words to show how numerous the Israelites had become. In fact, they are, they are doing what humans were supposed to do in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, God commands humanity, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth or the land, and subdue it. Notice in verse 7, the Israelites are fruitful. They're doing that. They're multiplying. They're filling the land, though the land of Egypt. The missing piece is that subdue part, subdue the land, for they are being subdued themselves. At this point now, they are enslaved. They are slaves, as we pick up Exodus, slaves forced to do the building projects for the Egyptian pharaoh. So God undertakes to deliver his people out of slavery in what's called the Passover, the great salvation event in the Old Testament. God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt, but why? Why does, he do, why does he do this? Why? Well, flip to Exodus 14 if you want to see all of these passages. Exodus 14, the actual Exodus itself, 
which means departure, the exodus, crossing the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds. It can be translated and we're shown why, why God delivers his people in Exodus 14 where the word glory is repeated. Now, the Hebrew language doesn't have exclamation points or marks. It shows emphasis by repetition. So catch the repetition of the word glory. Chapter 14, verse 4, God says, I will get glory, glory over Pharaoh and all his host. 14, 17, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. 14, 18, same thing. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, when I have gotten glory, glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God is crystal clear, isn't he, about why he's delivering his people. It's for his glory. Then Exodus 15, one chapter over. Exodus 15, after the Exodus, the song of Moses begins in verse 1 with Moses singing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. After the song of Moses, his sister Miriam picks up the tambourine and says the same thing. Then chapter 16, chapter 16, the people begin to grumble. They begin to grumble in the wilderness, yet God provides, why? For his glory. 16 verse 7. Notice 16 verse 7. It says, in the morning you shall see what? The glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, because he has heard your grumbling. But God doesn't just provide. He also gives a visible manifestation of his glory. 1610. Chapter 16, verse 10, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud, in this cloud, God making his glory visible or tangible. But it's not just in the repetition of the word glory. The reality of God's glory shows up again and again and again. Think about a passage Dan Arthur will teach soon Exodus chapter 3, when God reveals his personal covenant name to Moses at the burning bush, and God says, take off your sandals. The place in which you are standing, Moses, is holy ground. And Moses hides his face, afraid of the glory, holiness of God. Or consider the repeated demand Moses makes to Pharaoh on God's behalf. Let my people go that they may serve me, which means worship me. Let my people go that they may worship me. So the point is not just leaving Egypt. The point is his people worshiping God for his glory. Or think about the ten plagues. The ten plagues leading up to their exodus, their departure from Egypt. Each plague relates to an Egyptian deity. In each plague, God is getting glory over the Egyptian so-called gods. So in this first section, we behold the glory of God delivering his people. And then section two, quick overview here. Section two, we see God's glory, we could say, more in the worship of his people. God's glory in the worship the worship of his people, chapters 19 through 
34. Chapters 19 through 34, if you do the three-part division. Look at chapter 20 with me. Chapter 20, if you are flying along at 30,000 feet here. Chapter 20. The people finally get to serve or worship God at Mount Sinai, and there he makes a covenant with them. It'll be a wonderful study for us. Seeing the covenant God makes with, with his law, his law as a central feature of that covenant, but this law covenant is part of the overarching covenant of grace that began with Abraham. You see that reflected in verse 2, as the Ten Commandments are prefaced with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God gives his law to people he has rescued, delivered, saved. The purpose of God's law is to show his redeemed people how to live for his glory as an expression of worship. That's why we need the law as well, showing us how to live for the glory of God. And then the first commandment in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, God insisting, insisting that his glory not be shared with any so-called gods, including those in our hearts. Skip over to verse, uh, sorry, chapter 24, if you are flying along here. Chapter 24. Chapter 24, Moses and 70 elders go up Mount Sinai and they encounter God in his glory. It's fasting. They have a kind of covenant meal in the presence of God. And then in 24, verse 16, it reads, the glory the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. Next verse, 24, 17. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Goes on to say how they, they saw kind of a, a clear surface beneath God, so to speak. This just glimmer, glimpse of his surpassing glory and greatness. And then chapter 28, chapter 28, the priesthood is introduced. Priests who, who mediate the people's worship. They mediate the people's worship by representing the people before God and offering sacrifices on their behalf. And God, God decrees that these priests be clothed in a very particular way, that their clothing intentionally reflects, guess what, his glory. His glory and his beauty. Chapter 28, verse 2. You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother. Notice, for glory and for beauty. Dress the priests, God says, to reflect my glory. Then chapter 33, where this revelation of God's glory takes a more personal turn and Moses prays to God. Show me your glory. Would you show me? I mean, he's seen a lot of God's glory already. But he's not satisfied. And God explains that, you know, Moses, you're not going to be able to handle that, buddy. Um, you can take the afterglow. And so in 33, verse 
22, he, we read, while my, God speaking, while my glory, while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And as God's glory passes by, we get the central confession of God's character in the Old Testament. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding, friends, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's our God, his character in his glory. Merciful and gracious, abounding in loyal, steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the God we worship. In this second section, we behold again his glory. And then, section three. Section three, God's glory in his presence with his people. We see it in his deliverance of his people, the worship of his people. And then, thirdly, I think it's fair to break out this third section and see God's glory in his presence, his presence with his people, chapters 35 to 40. In chapter 40, the tabernacle is finally built. Chapter 40, what Phil Riken calls the most important building in the world. In fact, I forgot to say that this overview is based largely on a seminar by Phil Riken. So sorry about that, Dr. Riken. I meant to mention that earlier. I'm sure you're listening in. Phil Riken says, quote, of the tabernacle, the first building constructed to show how a sinful people can have a relationship with a holy God. A building constructed for this holy God's immediate presence in his glory. So look at chapter 40. We reach the, the book's climax, the pinnacle of Exodus. Chapter 40, verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so much so that Moses himself can't enter in. This is the pinnacle, the climax of the whole book. Not in the Exodus events themselves, as important as those are, but when God is here dwelling in his glory immediately among his people. See, the book begins with an enslaved people building for Pharaoh. It ends with a freed people building for God. This tabernacle or tent where God dwells in their midst in glory. It's wonderful. That's the overarching theme as Phil Riken teaches and as I borrow from Dr. Riken. Behold the glory of the God who saves his people. But why is that? Why is that the tinkering we need or would benefit from? Why? As Charlie Steinmetz knew exactly where to tinker, why is that? theme, a critical place where we need tinkering ourselves. Well, it's because a certain shift happens there, I think, like the shift 
from Ptolemy to Copernicus, as you've probably heard. Ptolemy was a second century, actually Egyptian astronomer who convinced people that the earth was the center of the universe, actually. And so the sun and the stars all revolved around the earth. And that's kind of how things look to us, at least. But then Copernicus was a 16th century astronomer who figured out that, no, the earth in our solar system, the earth actually revolves around the sun. A complete reversal of what was thought, a, a, a massive paradigm shift in conventional wisdom and thinking that we here on the earth orbit the sun, not the other way around. That the sun is the center of the solar system, you might say, and not we ourselves. And that's the shift, that's the tinkering. That's the tinkering I need in my heart and you need in your heart. And we always need as a church that shift. Realizing that everything else and everyone else does not actually orbit around me, myself, and I. But God and, and his glory that we've been seeing in Exodus, that God and his glory are, are the center and our lives are to orbit around him and his, and his praise. Think, think about that tinkering that shift for us as a church. As I mentioned, we're going through a transitional time. And look, it's been a, a three-year challenge for many, many churches, including our own. We live in one of the highest cost of living areas in the country. And we're coming into a kind of a pivot point, I might call it, for us as a body. How might this shift, this tinkering, help us? Well, Exodus was written to people over 3,000 years ago who had a different language and a different culture, but in a real sense, their story is our story. They had experienced a dramatic salvation, just like us. They'd been delivered from slavery, just like every Christian is delivered from slavery to sin. But they're not home yet. They're not in the promised land yet in this book, just like us. They're a pilgrim people here in Exodus, traveling through the wilderness, traveling through trials and challenges in the wilderness, just like us, traveling as a pilgrim people, through the wilderness of this world, through all kinds of challenges and trials and difficulties. And God knew exactly where to tinker for them 3,000 years ago and where to tinker for us today. It's in that shift of seeing His glory, His majesty, His greatness, beholding the glory of the God who saves, and then making sure our lives are orbiting around him and not thinking that others orbit around us. And so in this book, he's lifting their eyes and our eyes to behold him, the one who rules over every challenge and every difficulty we face in this wilderness. 
He lifts their eyes and ours to behold him, the one who provides for their every need and yours. He lifts their eyes and ours to see our God who accomplishes every single one of his purposes and promises for his glory, for his namesake, for his praise. That shift, friends, I think for us, provides strength when our hearts feel weak. I think that shift for us as a church can provide courage when we feel discouraged or deflated. I think that shift can provide motivation when we're confused. I think that shift reminds us of our fundamental purpose as a church, to do all for his praise. So, That's what we hope will happen through Exodus and Revelation, beholding God and his glory. But we also need that tinkering individually, I think. I know I do. We also need that tinkering, that shift personally as individuals. Our hearts are naturally turned in on themselves, Martin Luther said. We're born that way curved in on ourselves. And even after our deliverance from slavery to sin, even after our deliverance from that slavery to ourselves, that's still our constant battle, our constant struggle, the constant tug of war with the inner Narcissus, that character from Greek mythology who loses himself in his love for himself. He can't tear himself away from the reflection of himself. It's so often me. I have this tug of war with Narcissus within. I carry him with me everywhere I go. Times when I get discouraged, he's there, usually. Or downcast, or especially when I'm impatient or angry. Like driving. I have... cultivated a habit, not a good habit, of when a driver in front of me doesn't do what I think they ought to do, doesn't drive on my road like they ought to drive, I will, in my own car, just put up my hands. Well, I did this with my son in the car. (laughs) And so he has rightfully been teasing me. Dad is out of hands moment? Dad? Dad? And he's, he's right. It's helpful. Why do I do this? <laughs> well, because I think those drivers should revolve around me. I think they should orbit around my life. It's the same thing that happens when there's any person or situation that inconveniences me. <laughs> At least inner, in, inwardly. <laughs> Or when maybe others are praised, and I think I should get some credit. My heart goes. (laughs) Or when my loving wife lovingly challenges me. Inwardly, I go. (laughs) Sorry, sweetie. 
Because I'm so in love with me and my glory, and all I can think about is how does this affect me or how does this reflect on me, even more so? It doesn't reflect well. That's a problem. It's the inner narcissist. I need the freedom, the freedom of orbiting again around God and his glory. Where is that for you? Where do you go? <laughs> Where do you need this shift happening, this tinkering by the Holy Spirit in his love and his gracious work in your life? Where do you need that? Shifting of orbit. It's a process. Change is a process. The shift can maybe be quite subtle in ways. Jamie Smith, in his fine book, You Are What You Love, he tells how in 1914... Two ships collided in the fog off the coast of Virginia. The investigation later on revealed that one of the ships had a faulty compass. It was off by a mere two degrees. Their steering compass wasn't correctly aligned with the magnetic north compass. And usually that was fine, but over time, over time, it wasn't. And a collision happened. And many died. It can be subtle. Two degrees off. And so Smith says, we need to regularly recalibrate our hearts. Think of it that way. Regularly recalibrating our inner compass. What's guiding you, motivating you. The purpose you have for whatever you're doing. We need to regularly recalibrate our hearts, our inner compass, the, the homing beacon, he says, for life, to be redirected to our creator, our magnetic north. Exodus friends can help us with that recalibration. Its main theme is very close to the main goal for the Christian life. Think about how the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. The chief end of man is to glorify God, right? Orbit around God and enjoy him forever. That's our chief end, our main goal. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Exodus can help imprint that on our hearts, recalibrate that compass a bit more as we behold the glory of the God who saves. Isn't that recalibration where faith comes from and where I think joy comes from? Not living for me, for him. When his majesty becomes my main motivation, when his praise becomes my primary purpose, when his glory, when the glory we've seen, when his glory captures our gaze, couldn't that transform a marriage? As your motive and how you relate to your spouse becomes his majesty. Couldn't it translate, uh, transform single adults? As every day you are reminded that his praise is your primary purpose for living. Couldn't it translate to and transform work life that tomorrow morning your work becomes a platform for worship because you're orbiting him at the center? 
Couldn't it transform parents and kids and teens when his glory is what most of all fills your relationship? So here's my exhortation, friends. Here's my exhortation. As we study Exodus, pray that God would recalibrate our internal compass in all the ways he wants. Pray, as I have started to pray, God, turn my heart away from the inner narcissus to behold more of you and your glory. Pray that for us as a church, that our purpose would be more and more always defined by him, that we would orbit around him and his glory all the more. And pray this especially, friends, pray this especially as we behold Jesus through this book, as we see Christ through Exodus, as we see the fulfillment of the Passover feast when Jesus redefined the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. The Passover bread now representing his body broken for us. The Passover wine representing his blood shed for us. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Pray that as we see Jesus in the perfection of God's law. And we are then reminded of our need for Jesus' law-keeping. Credit to us by faith alone. Pray that as we see Jesus' priesthood in the priesthood of Exodus, for he is our great high priest who represents us and sacrificed himself. Pray that as we see our Lord in the tabernacle, that tent for worship, for he literally tabernacled, dwelt among us in John chapter 1, God dwelling with us in the flesh that he might now dwell with us by his Spirit. This is the tinkering we need, Grace Church. Seeing our deliverance in Jesus for his glory. Seeing our worship through Jesus for his glory. Seeing God's presence with us in Jesus by his Spirit for his glory. So let us behold the glory of the God who saves his people. Let's pray. I want to give you a moment to even respond right now to anything the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about. Any way your orbit might need to be adjusted, any ways your inner compass might need recalibration or maybe even coming to Christ for the first time, trusting only in his life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God. Take a moment to talk to him about that. If there's something to confess, do so looking to Jesus who has freed us from our slavery to sin. Pray that he would open our eyes again and again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for not only being the God who saves, but showing us 
your primary purpose and motivation. That we might align ourselves with you and your glory, your majesty, your praise. Help us make any shift, any recalibration, any even slight course adjustment that we might orbit all the more around you. Use even now the bread and the cup. To that end, we pray. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.